Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. Right, so I was talking about Russell Brand and this video that he posted this morning that I saw on Instagram. And it's to do with a Matt Hancock video of him having the extramarital affair, which uh, turns out to be she's in a relationship. Matt Hancock can, uh, has got a couple of kids and a wife. Russell Brand is doing his breakdown on the situation and he really, in summary, is said a couple of things that were quite constructive, but also two things that were deconstructive. Now, the first two things he said that were constructive are that humans are fallible, he's fallible, and that we should expect this from people. The second thing was that a government could be replaced, but then what would you have? You'd just have a new set of people in place that are probably also fallible, and they'll be working under the same totalitarian setup, which is... Uh, a band of corporates and uh, corporations global and and also the money and the power that goes along with that financial institution that controls that narrative. So there are the two positive things he said. But then he went on to say that the people gunning for Hancock's head should probably be a bit more um, empathetic and sympathetic to the fact that, hey, you know, he's got a family and she's got a partner and, and, and yeah, so that's kind of helpful, right? But He's trying to use that as a way to leverage empathy and sympathy for a man that is essentially creating terror through people's lives. You know, people are losing their jobs, people are not getting the healthcare that they need because they're getting locked out of hospitals for a so-called fake pandemic. He's cut the books over the pandemic. He's announced all sorts of draconian measures not in line with the facts that he's been given from the authorised institutions that they all apparently draw information from and down from, the World Health Organisation being one of them who declared there was no pandemic. And he has also been cooking the books in regards to the development and the timeline of events. So he's pushed things forward, pulled things back so that he can announce draconian measures. And he's obviously been targeted by those other people that are within the system that are around him. For instance, Boris Johnson called him fucking useless. That's a quote, otherwise I won't really be swearing. I'm trying to curtail that for the sake of making this more open to a wider audience. So apologies for that. I might beep it out. Anyway, my situation with this Russell Brand opinion is that he is being cast by a growing number now as a shill. A shill, somebody who represents the narrative in a way that seemingly suggests that he's sympathetic and empathetic to it and thus we should be too so in a way is he any different from those people that he's talking about in this manner those of you that uh, believe he's a shield will say no those of you that you love him just because he's a celebrity and has a fast mouth with a, a quick wit will say otherwise i'm sure so that's a debate to be had but this idea the second one was that if you have a new system which is not a government that is based on the same fallible group of people but is based on ethics and integrity that is what is missing and that's what society needs it needs it needs a new central body focused on ethics and integrity okay so how are you going to get that well he believes that could be the future that we need a new democracy he said 
a democracy that is based on ethics and integrity. Right, okay, all right, sure. That's going to work, isn't it? No, it's not going to work. You know why? Because here's the real news. Democracy is dead. It doesn't work. It's two wolves and a sheep voting over what's for dinner. And we know how that turns out. So you've seen how democracy works. It's fallible. Why? Because it can be cooked. The books can be cooked. And plus, if you have, let's just say, pick a number up from the air, a million people in the constituency voting on who's going to come to power. Now, the way the current system is set up is you have to have one, two or three choices. Probably more than that. But let's stick with the top three choices. So if a hundred uh, sorry, 100,000, which is 10% of the electorate, go in and they vote for box number one, you'd think, well, that's not enough, is it? Okay, well, if another 100,000 go in and vote for box number two as their first choice, well, then it looks like it's equal at the moment, right? And then what happens is, is the 800,000 that are left all of their votes are split between three, four, five, six, and seven. And then down there at the bottom, in eighth place, for 500,000 of those people, is box number one. Now, how do you think democracy works? Do you think that they pick out the first to, first past the post? Mm, yeah. Or do they just add up how many people voted for a number that is the number of the party in question and then throw that all down in a column and say, okay, well, yeah, they did vote for number one in eighth place, but they did vote for number one. Then that goes down as a vote. And so they throw it into the into the pile. And that's how democracy works. Well, does can anyone out there tell me that that's a fair representation of the people when only 10% of an electorate, uh, rather a party voted for by only 10% of the electorate can come into power. And that aside from the fact that the electoral process is open to corruption, as proved by the now whistleblowing Chinaman who says that he personally sent over uh, 5 million fake ballot papers to the US election, the Trump-Biden election, so that who could get in? Yeah, you know who got in, you know the other, you know the end of that story. So... Even if you can say, okay, we, we, somehow we can discredit that, it's not true. The idea of it happening is true. And that's proved by Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica were found guilty when they cooked the books over the Brexit and also the Biden-Trump election. Proven. There's a documentary about it, Cambridge Analytica, how they cooked the books using technology, right? So it's not like it hasn't been proven. It's broken. It doesn't work. Democracy doesn't work. It's broken. We talked a bit about governments. We talked, obviously, about Matt Hancock. Maybe we should talk about what a future could be like in terms of solution. Well, if it can't be a um, a system based on collectivism, which collectivism isn't what your average person would imagine it to be, which is a, um, a load of people get together and make decisions over what the future's like. Well, this is... Russell Brand's idea, right, is that you need a new democracy based on ethics and integrity. Well, if you're going to do that, you need a set of people to design those elements. And who are you going to get to do that? At the moment, it's the council culture who are gunning for it, it's the woke brigade, and it's the liberal left. And it's essentially, it's coming from this romantic idea that communism works, 
But they're, they're not saying, they don't want to say communism. Why? Because it's under the hood. So a, a push, they might say, well, it's a socialist movement. You know, we're doing it because we want to represent the working man, woman, uh, binary, whatever, right? So the division that's been created to set up a new set of people that apparently are going to dictate to us our new ethics and integrity is the problem. See, see, that is just a new totalitarian setup. So Brand is talking out of his ass on this one. And I love your Brand, mate. I think you've got a very smart mouth. I think you're very sharp. And you're very likeable and you crack me up. But you, you need to look. You need to have a look at yourself, mate. And you need to really check out what your, uh, <coughs> excuse me, what your proposed solutions actually are. So I'm going to help you out a little bit. This idea that you can get a bunch of council cultures or, you know, whoever you say that is to roll out a new set of directives to create an ethical and uh, uh, government with integrity, it's just passing over the power to a new set of people. That doesn't work. It's proven it doesn't work. Let's have a look at the cases at hand. Let's take Russia, Stalin's Russia. What happened there? Oh, let's have a bit of communism. Let's roll that fucker out. Let's go in... Kill out the, the royal family or, you know, the, the Bolsheviks that uh, they, they flew in, didn't they? Took over, actually recruited to do the job. Went in, overthrew the Tsar, uh, the Winter Palace, you know, basically a couple of revolutions ensued. Then, bosh, all of a sudden, Stalin's in power and he's like, right, first move, what am I going to do? He goes into the farming communities and he announces... Not by walking in there casually and saying, oh, hello, chaps, let's have a, a lovely old sit-down, a cup of tea and a, a slice of cake and have a chat about the future of our beloved country. No, he sends in an army and he just rapes and pillages everyone in the community of the rural areas. And he goes after one particular group. And the group he goes after are called the Kulaks. Look them up on the internet and tell me you don't agree with what I'm saying. The Kulaks were... Coined the, the phrase that's coined about them in that era is that they were the rich peasants. Now, they were uh, essentially, they were Russian, uh, predominantly Russian Jew, by all accounts. No anti-Semitism there, right? Let's keep that out of the picture for the moment. So they were, um, they were anti-nothing uh, because they just worked the land. They, they were farmers. And that's why they were called the rich peasants, because... They work the land, they produce crops for the community, for, for Russia, and not only did they do that, but going along with this idea of having some form of community and ethical uh, setup, is that they had a system by which the people that worked for them on their land were fed, uh, given uh, money, looked after, and even pieces of land to own for themselves. So they used to, it was like a sort of a buy-in scheme, a, a kind of work-to-own situation where they had a community, loads of land, and they would extend the uh, arable land by having it worked on once they'd, you know, established uh, certain areas of land. They would just expand upon that. And when they expanded upon that, the people that showed that they were adept and capable of working that land and producing crop from that land were encouraged to go it on their own and, and be, become part of a collective setup where they also then brought in more peasantry 
to train them up to work the land to produce food to feed the peasantry you get what i'm saying so it's like a they worked they passed down the rewards they kept some for themselves and they managed to grow in terms of their own wealth and stature so it was a form of communism you could say but also capitalism but was it Oh, what it was was just a bunch of people that weren't greedy, weren't ego-driven, that they wanted to share the land, they wanted to share the crops, and they wanted to help people. That is what we're talking about here. Now, you don't need somebody to tell you to do that. That's just a decision you make. You operate from your heart, you decide, I'm going to do that. Now, Russell, in your piece, you talked about people acting locally. That was good. And in the sense, this is what happened. People talked locally. In a sense, they acted locally and they thought locally. They actually cared about their community and the people that were in need, right? So that's a great example. So what happened? That was working lovely, no problem. And why shouldn't there be a bunch of peoples, aka the Kulaks, making wealth off the back of that? You, Anyone can challenge me on why you would think that is unfair, To summarise that for you before you do come at me, you've got a bunch of people making wealth off of making other people wealthy and providing food for their country. Now, you come back at me and tell me that is not ethical and full of integrity. It is. Why is this important? Because along came Stalin and he looked at it and he was like, fucking rich peasant. Oh, sorry. Why is this important? Because Stalin came along and he said, we're going to put a stop to this. Send in the troops and put out, um, like he announced, this is, I'm laughing because I find it tragically funny and I don't know if that makes any sense. Maybe you understand. He decided, no, that's not good. They're not supposed to have that sort of power. Ending that. So he put out a hit on Kulaks. He said he literally made it a lawful act. If you came across a Kulak and killed one, then the uh, the Stalin government would turn their head and say, we don't count that one because they're Kulaks. Stalin went on the offensive and he put out a hit on every Kulak in Russia. Not only did he do that, he sent in the troops, he gathered them up, And he started shipping them off to the farthest regions of his country. In this case, it was Siberia, to minus whatever degrees. If you you took your wazzer out and had a slash, it would freeze before it hit the ground. It was proper cold. And he stripped them bare and he left them there. And then he put them into death camps and work camps and all sorts, just because you were a kulak. Um, What happened? So the land fell into disrepair. And his argument for doing it was that there was a stockpile of grain stored in silos and um, and barns around Russia. Why were they doing that? Probably because they needed seed for the following years. Probably because they were keeping it until they could get it to market or just because there is sometimes a surplus. Why? Because they were doing such a good job, they had a surplus. So Stalin didn't like that. He's like, oh, you're hoarding food. He made it illegal to, to hold grain, to hoard food. <laughs> well, it's ridiculous. This is, this is communism for you. 
And so then he says, right, not only are we banished Kulaks and put out a murder hit on every one of them that anybody can take up, he started rewarding people for doing so and he took back all the land and he announced something which is called collectivism, which was whereby he was going to take back the land and he was going to install people on it to work it himself. Well, I'll tell you how that worked out. It crashed and he sent the country into the probably, arguably, its most terrible famine ever. People starved to death, you know, they froze in their, in their beds. You talk about so-called COVID, people dying, standing up in bus stops while they're waiting for the 171 to Shanghai or whatever. No, this guy, he created death and fear and he raped his country and and you couldn't speak about what he was doing because then you were against the state, you were a tyrannical um, disbeliever in his system and you were a terrorist and, and he killed you for that. So if you had a voice, you were dying. If you were a kulak, you're dead. If you worked the land and you didn't do a proper job, you died. And guess what? The land did fall into disrepair. He lost loads of arable agricultural land because he didn't get... Uh, it wasn't getting worked and it froze over and the seed went to seed and whatever. He destroyed. He destroyed Russia. And communism works, does it? Let's have a look at another case. China. How's that working out? On the surface, you'd say that's working out pretty well. Why? Because they're uh, the leaders in the world in terms of manufacturing. Apparently, they're still second to US in uh, the consumerism states. But the United States is arguably the biggest market in terms of consuming. And China is the biggest distributor in terms of selling stuff to them to consume. Of course, they've resisted that. And Trump came in and he, he did some deals about trade and so on and so forth to try to level the balance of power. Uh, well, look, of course, the communists didn't like that. That's why, well, probably another reason why Trump was uh, tricked and lied about to get him out of office because he was actually making moves to, to move towards an ethical system based on integrity, looking after everybody. And, you know, you've only got to look at all the mandates and the papers and the, the things that he pushed through office before he was ousted. He, he did more for misrepresented communities than any president ever has, certainly more than Obama did, and he's supposed to be representing black and ethnic groups, but he did more damage to black and ethnic groups than, than Trump ever did. But yet, everyone scoots over the fact that he did that. Why? Well, that's another story. So, communism doesn't work. But what happened was, in the 50s, maybe, no, earlier, as part of a 100-year plan, this, uh, the, the Russian... The Russians developed a strategy called perestroika and it was a way for communist countries to enter the rest of the world, aka everyone who wasn't communist, and to roll out of their communism. Now they knew that they couldn't just come in like Bolshe and, and, like, and lord it over everyone and just terrorise everyone into it. Why? Because they had to enter other states. They didn't have the same homegrown power. They couldn't just lock the doors to their own state and then just start raping and pillaging their own and, and disappearing them to death camps. Uh, I just want to add, by the way, that those people that were sentenced to death out in Siberia, they actually flourished and they, and they grew into a, uh, back into the state that they were and they started working the land again and then they got out of Russia and they travelled to various parts of the world to continue their work. 
So the so-called Jews and the rich peasants' kulaks that everybody was gunning for and hating over were actually helping people, and they're probably still doing it today through the generations that have ensued as a result of them surviving such atrocities. Perestroika was a way for the communist system to enter the rest of the political sphere. Now, what they decided was that they're going to dress themselves as capitalists and they're going to make it look like, have a look over here, look how we're doing so well. Now, you've only got to look at China as the example of that. It's a communist country that are carrying out atrocities against their own people. You don't need... They control people's voice, they lock people away, people disappear. It's like... It's pretty much... It's like Stasi Russia, it's like Nazi Germany... And it's like communist China. And the fact that they have huge manufacturing and that they give the impression that they've got money, because go anywhere in the world, into any major capital, go into any major fashion house outlet, right? Like the Gucci's, your Prada's, your Givenchy's, your uh, whatever, right? Go into any of those shops and tell me who are the ones buying all the goods. And not just buying all the goods, what are they using to buy it with? Cash. Cash money, debit cards are a push, but it's cash. Trust me, it's cash. I see it everywhere. And it's not just in the fashion houses. It's in property, it's in manufacturing. They're taking over companies. Global corporations are on the radar for Chinese representatives who, according to one person I had a conversation with, who is from China, grew up in China, escaped China, came to live in the so-called West. And he told me that every day as part of the party, they call it the party, the Red Party, the Communist Party, he said every day the party makes one more person, aka family representative, a billionaire in US dollar terms. And then they send them off into the Western world and they say, go and buy stuff. Go and set yourself up in this country, that country, etc., and then make it possible to bring more out. So it's like economic uh, invasion, but it's communist invasion. The, the setup with the governments is because they're doing such a crap job. Why? Because they've been forced into doing a crap job by all the people that have been installed to so-called represent the people, a.k.a. the Matt Hancocks of the world and the Boris Johnsons and the Tony Blairs, and the George Bush and the Obamas, etc. All of those people have an agenda which is passed from the top down of this power-hungry, satanic movement, right? So while they were off busy playing satanic movements, the communist China under the guise of uh, Perestroika and the Russian Communist Party are rolling out communism. And they've got it in the universities. They've got kids like talking about, yeah, you know, Che Guevara and um, uh, Mao Zedong and, and all these like these um, these so-called uh, voices of of the East and how they have a better way and look how they stuck up for us. And you know, let's look at Che Guevara actually. Che Guevara actually his name's Ernesto, but Che was a nickname given to him by uh, the Argentinians because he was was endearing to them. They invited him into their heart. And it, she means, hey, you. Ernesto Guevara. Who is Ernesto Guevara? Well, he was just somebody that grew up underneath the guise of, you know, oppression, and he wanted to change that. And, and so, uh, long story short, he got connected with Fidel Castro. They um, 
They had a first attempt, Grandma, of landing on the shores of, uh, it was the northeast, southwest, I think it was the western shores of, Havana, of, of Cuba. The most treacherous shore to land on, by the way. And they would have had to cut through thickets and thick like bamboo and it would have taken them a week to get 100 yards. And so they didn't really do a good move anyway. They got arrested. There's a big massive like, sculpture in the middle of Santiago de Cuba, loads of swords sticking in the ground. And, and the, you know, the boat, the grandma is still there. It's still in Havana, just outside old Havana. You can go and have a look at it in the museum. The museum that was put set up in Batista's old mansion in the middle of old Havana. And so... What, who, who was Che Guevara? Okay, so he met Fidel Castro, they, they carried out this, they went back, they had another go. And eventually from inside, they managed to, from the Sierra Nevadas, which is the mountains, the rural areas of Cuba, they managed to gain sympathy from locals, farmers. Here we go again with the farmers, right? So the farmers, and they started to hide them and give them food and support them because... The narrative was that they were going to overthrow Batista. These people had lived under Batista. They'd seen their country taken to rack and ruins. Why? Because the Batista was treating Havana like a, a sex club, you know, and he had an order, the, uh, the untowards, the, the people that were up to no good, the criminal fraternity of the US was flying in at the weekend, bringing all their money, washing all their cash, through the, through the Cuban banking system, setting up businesses and setting up, you know, offshore accounts there uh, and also bringing in the drugs and guns and, and recruiting the Cubans into doing this work for them. The people weren't happy. Fidel Castro tapped into that public opinion and, and he, he gained sympathy and empathy and, and they started to back him. As a result of that, one night on uh, December the 31st of 1958, 59 actually, and the, the news got out, so there was a two-pronged attack. Fidel said, we're going to go into Havana. Shea said, well, I'm going to go down Santa Clara, Villa Clara. And it was a, there was one railway line that ran up to Havana, and all the troops were being sent up from the south um, into Havana. So he went down, and he, he set up a, um, an explosion on the, on the track, uh, he, he basically buckled the track, train came along, crashed, and there was a massive gunfight, and, and that was the end of that, right? Uh, they over, that, was, that was actually the flashpoint, that was the battle that uh, was allowed Che Guevara to get in touch with Fidel and say, we've sacked the, the, uh, the lion, it's over, now you can go in and take Havana, and he went into Havana, Fidel, and he sacked Havana. But actually, the graft was done down south by Che Guevara. So Fidel Castro, the new president, and he said his first mandate was to make Che Guevara the Minister of Finance. He run the economy. They actually put his face on the banknotes and, and, he be, and his name was signed on the banknotes. And so, but he became massively disillusioned with where Fidel was going. He didn't like it and he didn't like sitting behind the desk as well and he, he was just had enough of that. He didn't like the politics. He went to the UN in uh, New York when they addressed it uh, for the first time, uh, which is a way of saying, look, we recognise you as a state now. Uh, we recognise you, Fidel Castro, as a new installed head of the state. Meanwhile, the CIA, uh, 
and everything like that. In tales were trying to kill him. They were, you know, the Bay of Pigs was going on, um, and you know they were putting uh, devices in his, like exploding devices in his cigars, and they were trying to poison his food. And Fidel had a, you know, a, a food tester. Uh, he used to test everything he ate before he ate it. How about that? And so they were trying. At the same time, they're welcoming him. On the other hand, they're trying to kill him. And why were they trying to kill him? Because he was upsetting the apple cart, wasn't he? Because the powers that be, the money, those that had the power control, was using Cuba as a way to uh, conduct their business under the radar. He was a problem. He had to go. And so if he's the problem and he has to go and the CIA are coming out of work, who are the CIA working for? If the, if the criminal fraternity want him out and the CIA are doing the job, well, you've only got to put two and two together and there you come up with four, Right. They're, who are they working for? The CIA, who are they working for? And so you can see how corrupt it is. At that UN meeting, when one of the, uh, I don't know, questions posed to Che Guevara was, are, are you a communist? You're a communist. And Che Guevara, he said to him, I'm not saying that, you're saying that. And then you know what they reported? Che Guevara is a communist. And everyone has always said that Che Guevara is a communist. Che Guevara is not a communist. He never said he was. And... And I used to think that best he was a socialist. I just think he was an anti-establishment, really, like in terms of corruption. That's what I think Che Guevara was. That's based on my understanding, my readings, my talking to the people in Cuba. I've been to Cuba. I've spent, uh, I've had many conversations with many different people inside Cuba. And they, what they loved about Che Guevara was that he was out there to represent the common average person. Yeah, he didn't get a chance to do that because he just didn't suit the role. Castro was supposed to do that. Having said that, the people in Cuba loved Castro, but those that were starting to turn on him before he died were the younger generation. The younger generation who hung empty Coke cans in their living room as a way to say, hey, look, this is what we aspire to. Why? Because the American consumerism plan entered their minds and they corrupt them that way. That's how it works. You can have any colour you want as long as it's Coca-Cola. Yeah, I know it's Ford and cars and it's black, but it's meant to be a joke. And so we have this situation where every time a so-called communist system rises up, we are shown how it is actually operating and in what manner it is apparently going to help us out as a collective. Well, but they don't work. And they don't work because they're all interconnected. So at the same time that whole Cuba thing was going on, we had this perestroika program in place. And, and because the Cubans were going hungry, because of embargoes placed on it by the, you know, the United Nations, actually, and the Western world and the Western um, alliances, that they, the people were starving. They couldn't produce enough. They even, they said, well, we're not going to buy your sugar cane, we're not going to buy your bananas. And they just literally, the same they did with Jamaica, said, we're not buying your bananas anymore, we're going to grow those in the States, right? So they can end the countries whenever they want. That is the US, the, the powers that be, the money makers, the, uh, the real money behind the scenes is the, the people that run the banks and the oil and the et cetera, et cetera, the royals, etc. So communism has been rolling itself out as a capitalist system to entice you in. And they've been attacking the universities, as I say, and they're instilling in the young this idea that communism is the way to go forward. But at the same time, 
they've got a system based on technology which is painting the picture that that's the way to go. Uh, you know, through the narrative, the media, the multimedia, the um, social media, and and they're putting people in positions of power that are shutting people down. And so, Perestroika is a very interesting subject. And the person who brought it to the light wrote a book, and that book's available. And uh, I urge every one of you to go out there and read that book. And... What's the solution? Well, the solution isn't like the one Hitler wanted with a final solution where it was to wipe out anyone, you know, that didn't sort of fit his agenda. Um, Sometimes I think to myself, maybe we would be better off about 90% of the Earth's population because they're pretty dumb, ain't they, really? The way they follow these people that are put up onto these... uh, stages with their platitudes and, you know, these hip, hip, uh, hypocrisy uh, narratives, hypocritical narratives that they're rolling out. And people can see it stinks. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, it's operating from uh, generating fear and, and they just don't get it. And people vote for these people and they pick up the paper and they believe what they read. And, and when somebody comes out and speaks the truth, they get gaslighted. Uh, When somebody points out the failings of a system that's meant to be representing us, they get gaslighted. Uh, And it's all part of the plan to silence, to silence those that actually do genuinely want a better world. And so remembering that this whole thing was about is Russell Brand a shill and what he's saying is actually trying to drum up um, empathy and sympathy for a system that is royally having us over. Um, then I guess the case is case is against you. Uh, the, the case is for Russell Brown being a shield, and it's against his idea that uh, a future of democracy based on ethics and integrity is a way to go. Because it doesn't work, mate. Because why? Because that's just somebody else playing God. And guess what? There's already someone that's done that job. Now, who was that? Well, there's actually a book. It's called The Bible. And if you open it up and you have a look in it and you have a look at Psalms and Proverbs, you've got all the ethics and integrity you need right there. And then if you go forward, skip forward, and you read the New Testament, and particularly the part in red where Jesus speaks, you'll hear that there's a man that manages to love people even when they're failing because he knows they're failing, but he doesn't hold them up on a pedestal because they're doing so. He doesn't say, oh, well, let's just ignore the fact that people are corrupt and sinful and, uh, no, he calls it out. He calls it out for what it is. He speaks the truth. He is the truth, the light, the life, and some say the light, and the way. And if you, if you read his teachings and you assign yourself to those teachings, you too, Russell Brand, will see that you're playing God, that because I know what your um, your spiritual preference is because you've done videos on it. So it's not like I'm guessing. And please know that I am not judging you for your spiritual choices. That is up to you and that's your journey. And in God's timing, everybody comes to the light. And 
And I pray that that happens for you in God's time because it's not my job. But I will call you out. Why? Because in my belief system taught to me by the greatest lover and healer of them all is that I have to love you and when you are wayward, call you out. So you are held accountable because ultimately when judgment day comes, you'll be held accountable just like I will. So we're all going to get held accountable. So the moral of this podcast is don't be fooled by what you see. Don't be fooled by what you see on the internet, by people that have a public opinion, by people that are followed by millions of people because they wear nice clothes, live in a nice house, marry the right person, or, you know, marry a famous person, uh, have, um, have clever language and a fast wit and a quick tongue. Let's not just follow people based on that. Let's try to focus on the real situation at hand here is... Where are people operating from? If it's, a, if it's from their heart, then they generally have arrived at a place where we are humble, and nobody knows better than that, than me, how much I had to work to be humble, because I got caught up in a world that wants me corrupted. And I, I was happy to take part in that, because it's a welcome departure from my own internal committee that convinces me that I'm useless and incapable and not the person that's going to make any difference to anyone's life, and how dare I think that anyway, how arrogant. That committee, juxtaposition to the one inside me that knows that throughout my life all I've ever done is try to do good by people, try to support people, help people, forgive people, love people, even when they do terrible things to me, and and have along the way not understood why people persecute me. Persecute me long before I announced I was a Christian or even found out I was properly one when I got saved in nine, uh, when I was 43 years old. I never even knew that was what was happening, that God was... Uh, God was, uh, he was, what's that when you put something in a, a, a furnace? He was casting me, you know? He was casting me in the role and he was teaching me everything I needed to know, showing me everything I needed to see. And he was teaching, and he, along the way, I, I learned that actually all the while I was a Christian. And, it, and ethics and integrity do come into it, but they weren't something that was developed by a communal body that is just out to readdress and rebalance the books because they feel like they've been oppressed in some way or another. This isn't about collective, uh, collective integrity. This is about in, individual integrity. Individual integrity and the truth. And ethics, this isn't about ethics and integrity on a collective, I'll say it again, on a collective basis. It's an individual thing. And of course, liberalism, you're seeing now, is about, oh, we all have to make everybody accountable to the ethics and the integrity. That No, that's just lording it over people, playing God. Uh, and the conservative view is, which I never thought I'd say this, it's meant to be, it's not the version that you're seeing on your TV and you're hearing in the House of Parliament, basically a load of animals just shouting at each other. No, the, the conservative that I understand is that I take care of myself, that I become a better person, that I work on being a better person and that my community will support me on that journey. It's not the other way around. It's not my community is the journey and they dictate to me how to fit into it. No, it's I'm on an individual personal journey 
and I require assistance from a loving, caring community to be able to carry that function out. And guess what that community is called? It's not called the government. It's not called Russell Brand's new idea of democracy based on integrity and ethics. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one place. There's a there's few that have sort of got little uh, inklings about, you know, what that might be. You know, Buddhism was one, which is about, you know, egolessness and, and looking into an inner journey to try to find enlightenment. Yeah, there's some goodness in that. But the problem with that is it's a very individualistic uh, in the sense that that's where it ends. It's not like, oh, you pray for others, pray for, you know, this heart suture, etc. And that's great. But where is the accountability? Where's the accountability on groups, other groups? When, like recently, and I know this firsthand of a group, a Buddhist group that have been praying for BLM and have been praying, you know, uh, chanting for BLM. Is, is that... Is that your idea of a religious movement? Because it's not mine. Whatever your beliefs are, politically motivated-wise, should that be a spiritual um, endeavour to pray for segregation, for a new version of segregation? No, it's not. Well, I'll tell you where prayers like that, they, they take place in the church as well. Like the church is praying for a vaccine. That's wrong as well. So it ain't. it's not just like... Uh, Buddhists are doing it. The church is doing it as well. They have people in prayer ministry teams praying for a vaccine to be able to heal, uh, to so for a va- to quickly develop a vaccine and roll it out to everybody so that we can be free of COVID. What kind of prayer is that? No, not in my church. That's not the church I know. The Christian and the Christian walk that I know is the one of the Bible. And it said, you do not pray to matters of the flesh. And you do not ask flesh to repair flesh. You ask God. You go to God. There's two laws, man's law and God's law. And the the law that you go to to create an ethical society based on integrity, which is developed by a man or a group of people that get together and make that decision, that is man's law. That is man, woman, child, whatever, playing God. This is the problem. There's only two things we need to know about God, that we are not God and that there is one. And the other thing is that open up the Bible, have a look. Don't believe what you hear necessarily in churches, okay? Don't believe what you hear in groups of um, religious movements. Don't believe in a dogma. Don't believe in that. Believe in your own relationship. Open up the Bible, ask Jesus to invite him into your heart, confess that he was alive, uh, uh, at least do that. If you can't do anything else, at least consider doing that because even if you just don't believe in Jesus and you believe of the idea that a man could live a sinless life and he could be all about helping everybody and then he gets crucified for it and he announced before he was that he was going to rise three days after. He did and there are... There is more documentation to prove that than on any other historical subject that is in existence. It's like a hundred times more greater than the nearest and dearest of its uh, of of its ideological sort of um, existences, and and yet people still refute it. Well, the facts are in, you know, and the votes have been counted. Jesus did exist. 
There are buildings, places, history, writings, uh, cross-referenced uh, writings about that. There are many books to describe what happened, what was said, what he said, where he went, when he did it, the healings, the miracles, all of the stuff that he carried out. It's proven many times over and, and the, the facts are out there. But first you need to invite Jesus into your heart and then he'll reveal them all to you in a way that you've never thought that you would see again or before. And, and as a result of that, you will find out that actually everything that Jesus stood for, the Christian walk, is everything that you're looking for. That it's not in man, it's in God. And if you're scared of the word God, it's because you probably need him. And if you're not scared of the word God, it's probably because you need him. And this is the way it is. And we need to yield to the idea that we're God. We need to yield to the idea that man's going to fix our problems because guess what? They created it. It's like the addict. The addict can't get themselves out of the problem. Why? Because the addict got themselves into the problem. And if they were so smart at getting themselves in and out of problems they wouldn't have got into the problem in the first place this is the you cannot fix your own problem you need to outsource and you can't trust another man to take care of it collectively because we've seen in this podcast what happens when you do it's all about ego you need an ego to get up in the morning and get out of bed so i'm gonna round this off um it's 47 minutes this is this is good this is about the end of the line and so there was, there was talk and deliberation. This is the second podcast, excuse me, around, well, it, does this name Digital Jesus really fit the bill? And I'm, I'm sticking with it for now. Digital Jesus, you know, because we live in an age which is apparently uh, we're allowed to hand over all of the decisions and our ethical and our integrity to a bunch of people and machines and computers and no, that's not going to work. Not in its current setup, right? That's meant to be there to serve us. The digital age is meant to be there to serve us. And I have a strategy for that. Trust me, I have a solution for that. And, and the other side is that Jesus is the only way because he's the only proven way um, in terms of the writings and, as I say, the historical uh, the historical credible information at hand that his way works. You have to love people, right? You have to find a way. We have to do that together. We have to set up a system whereby we can love each other and respect each other. And you don't need a committee to do that. It's an internal decision, one that is made by dropping ourselves out of our own power game and leaving us into the hands of our God, a God. The God. In this case, it's Jesus, right? The Trinity. And so, digital and Jesus can work, but they need to work together. And digital needs to answer to Jesus and not the other way around. And at the moment, that's where it's going. And I had a brief conversation just in postscript with a, a close uh, confidant yesterday about this idea of what the vaccine is actually doing you know transhumanism that there have already been reports of individuals losing their contact with their god as a result of having the jabs and there's a there's a school of thought that i'm sure will grow about how this jab is designed to detach us from um, 
our connection with God and our spiritual walk. And so very concerning, very dangerous, but not for me because I'm saved. And God bless you if you are. And if you're not, you can invite Jesus into your heart right now and you too will be saved. And so I pray for your soul and I pray for everybody who's listening and and I hope to uh, come back soon and add on to this incredible journey. Amen. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus. Digital Jesus.